Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Sally Krawchuk is uh, with us, and she is, of course, an historic place on Wall Street, delivering first-order securities analysis for Sanford Bernstein, where she broke original ground, and then her executive work in financial management, and now running Elevist is owned. The book is Own It, and it's not another touchy-feely, gee-golly uh, book here. This is the real thing, and it's hard-hitting. Let's start with diversity councils. You go right after diversity councils and uh, say, no, 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 help me here. Well, here's what I would say, Tom, is, and I think we've seen it in 2016, diversity has stalled. Gender progress, we certainly have seen it in politics, but in business as well, for all the discussion and debate about the power of diversity, it stalled, and on Wall Street, you know it's gone backwards over the past decade. It's gone backwards, and what is your prescription to get away from the happy talk of the recent decade? Well, for CEOs, start to just do it, because the impact of not doing it has been theoretical. Right. You won't get the higher return, return on equities, you won't get the greater innovation, but at some point it's going to become actual because the number one reason millennial women leave their jobs today yeah. is to make more money. And you look at a guy like Mark Benoff who we interviewed yeah. at Davos and he goes back to 1999 starting with three guys in an apartment and he's, I guess, made a success of himself. And Benoff says, come on, if you actually do this, live it day to day, it's not that hard. What's holding up the rest of corporate America? Well, it's because they think it is that hard. It is so much easier to bring in diverse individuals and treat them like middle-aged white guys. Be confident. Make your case. Raise your hand for the P&L responsibility. As opposed to really pulling out of everybody the different things they bring to work that drive the power of diversity. Right. Sally, do we just need more transparency? More transparency in the workforce means that you know how much everyone's paid, you know how many people are employed, and it's only through transparency that people can actually fight for diversity. I can want to, to fight for diversity, but it's very difficult for me to see where I should be fighting, for example. Well, th I think that's a great point. And on today's trajectory, we are either 100 years, 150 years, 180 years away from gender pay parity, longer if you're a woman of color, so way away but all of a sudden, there are these resources such as pay get raised, uh, comparably hired, where we can go in and see about how much we should be paying. So back in my day, a couple of years ago, when I would go in for a raise, it was, please give me a raise. Today, it's, this is how much I should be making, and I can see it. And so I'd like that raise. The power is shifting. Right. What is the one? Th what is the one common misconception on boards on how to treat diversity and actually how to be more inclusive? Well, look, I think boards just haven't really taken the bull by the horns. I mean, everybody says this is an important to do, but when your CEO shows up and says, "Yeah, I know," and I would love to put Susie in that role, but Jim, Jim is such a it's Jim, and gosh, he reminds me so much of me. 
the board finds it difficult to reach into the company and question those individual decisions, despite what the research indicates. Okay, let's look here at the video here. We did a research project. Sally's gagging here this morning off the lousy Sorry. coffee. The lousy surveillance. <laughs> Bring up the video of this weekend. And this is extraordinary, but I want to tie this into Own It as well. You got four million women marching. I get it. It's a huge deal. But how many of those women took trigonometry? You go right to it on page 132 of your book. And you say this canard that women can't do math. Is just baloney. And what people don't know, folks, is Krawchuk invented this on Wall Street with your work at Sanford Bernstein. Are you seeing more women say, screw the stereotype, I'm doing trig? Well, I, did, I didn't invent trigonometry, though I do appreciate the compliment. <laughs> but here's what I would say. We're now starting to talk about the gender money gaps. And women, there are several gender money gaps we have which cost us millions over the course of our lives. Women can go to the Alavest website and they can see we put together a whole guidebook on this. The one that I'm very focused on with Alavest is the gender investing gap, which costs women hundreds of thousands or millions. And we still buy the Aussie and Harriet. Math is for guys. It, guys are better investors than, than women. That is no, neither of those things are true. I'm trying to think of the percentage of our audience that don't know who Ozzy and Harriet is. They don't even know that Rick Nelson went to a garden party. Oh, Ozzy and Harriet? It's way back. Gilligan's <laughs> Island. Gilligan's the Partridge Island. Family. Maybe? How do we get away from the stereotype of Ginger and Tina, or whatever her name was? Well, I know we need to actively move away, but this is the place the stereotypes are there. Here's one that drives me nuts. Women need more financial education to invest. And we women, because we love getting our A's, are like, you're right. I need more financial education, except the guys need more, too. Right. But we invest anyway. Right. They invest anyway. So here's the, here's the final point. Industry okay. symbol, a bull. Not a lot okay. of women are looking at that and saying that's for me. So I want to bring in Sally Krawcheck now. She joins us uh, here in the studio. She's the author of a new book. Own It, The Power of Women at Work, of course, former CEO of Smith Barney, now the CEO and co-founder of Elvis. Great to have you with us. Let's start at the beginning of your book, uh, a great first line here. Well, here we are, you right, <laughs> but the view looks a little different than we uh, expected. Were there a lot of revisions here between, uh, between the events <laughs> of November the 8th and where we are today? Remarkably few, yeah. actually, because diversity has stalled in corporate America. And for those of your listeners on Wall Street, has gone backwards on Wall Street before the shocking too many election results. So, yes, three days after the election, I did wake up and call my publisher, say, oh, my gosh, we, you know, let's can I change the first couple of lines? But remarkably little because little of the stalling. Uh, there was a piece in, in Bloomberg Business Week about uh, all that Hillary Clinton promised to do if she were to be elected for women who work in government, mm. particularly at the, the, the mid-level. And there was uh, great despair in Washington that that was going to change with uh, with President Trump. Your background is in Wall Street, not in government, but um, there are ramifications from, from the way the election turned out for women in business. Absolutely there are. Um, you know, I was personally hoping for a mandated parental leave. We're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have it. And there's new research that shows it pays for itself in the first year because women are more likely to come back if they have maternal leave and you don't have to replace them and train their replacement. Regardless, one of the points of the book before the election is, hey, guys, you know, what we've been doing has gotten us so far, but no farther. So what are what's going to happen now? And the points on the book is, first of all, you know, there's so much friggin advice out there <laughs> that tells us to act like men when, in fact, we bring so many great qualities to the workforce that are becoming more important, such as 
risk awareness, such as relationship orientation, such as long-term perspective. I mean, things that are important and are becoming more important and drive great results in business. The issue is, before, there wasn't a lot we could do about it. If a company didn't appreciate it, we could go work at another company. Now we have much more information. We can figure out, we can go to websites to figure out our gender pay gap, and we can go start our own friggin' businesses. All of a sudden, you know, the technology is changing things in a way we have so much more power. I'm, I'm so interested in that. You write about that in the book, the, the role that technology is playing here. Explain that a little bit more, the, the doors that uh, changing technology is opening for women in business. No, and, and it's not perfect, right? Venture capitalists don't get it. But, you know, what do we get, like 3 or 6 or 7% of venture capital dollars? But most businesses are not venture capital funded. And today, the cost of technology is coming down. You don't have to buy servers. You, you rent space in the cloud. But it's not just technology that's taking down the cost of starting businesses. It's WeWorks as opposed to long-term leases. It's Zenefits as opposed to an HR department. You know, it's, it's video conference as opposed to business travel that you're able now to start businesses to a degree you couldn't before. And there's so many more role models. I go through a hunkin' list of them there of women who were starting their own businesses. And in part, in part, actually, the number one reason women get for starting their own businesses is because they want to build the business at which they want to work. Mm. And corporate America isn't working for so many of them. So for big companies that don't get it, there wasn't much penalty before. I believe going forward, as women recognize this, these places can be hollowed out. Mm. Talking with Sally Krachik, the author of Own It, The Power of Women uh, at Work. Uh, picking up on what you were just saying, how has mentorship changed, the notion of mentorship changed here since you got into the business? Well, mentorship, it's its very nice. It's very good stuff. It's, hey, I have a question for uh -huh. you. Hey, I have an answer for you. Women have, and I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but three times as many mentors as men. Mm. But we have about a third as many sponsors as I men. See. What's a sponsor? It's a person in the room who says, promote her or promote him, or I'm going to put my political capital on the line for him or her, and really pull you along. And we just don't have as many of them. In fact, even we think we have more than we do, and then when we question about it, we're like, nope, don't, don't have them. <laughs> um, so that's an important – in fact, what I would say, you know, we talk about the book in a geeky way, but there's a lot of action-oriented advice based on my almost 30 years in the business – um, as well as a, a lot of Wall Street anecdotes, some of which I think, you know, you're going to be like, what happened? I can't believe it. And I figure if I can sort of give the advice on how I navigated through this most male of businesses, it should be relevant for, for other businesses as well. You write about groupthink on Wall Street, especially among the, the executive ranks. Talk a bit about navigating that and, and how much that continues to persist today. Well, I got fired because of it, essentially. So um, Wall Street, the, the a business I love, went into the downturn white, male, and middle-aged, and it came out whiter, maler, and middle-ageder, uh, which is really sort of surprising. And one of the points I make is that while we talk about greed as a driver, the downturn, okay, leverage, absolutely. But one thing we don't talk about is groupthink. And what I saw were individuals who had the same types of backgrounds, the same type of training, same tra training programs, all friends who thought the same way. Mm. And so as we went into the downturn, there was a, it's going to be okay. Remember we saw this. Oh, yeah, I remember <laughs> the last time we, oh, remember that one felt, oh, and I'm like, what are we talking about? You're finishing each other's sentences. And so there wasn't that outside, hey, guys, I have a vastly different background, perspective, orientation, way of approaching problems. How about this? And without more, without more of that, we drove straight over the cliff. 
you had this career on Wall Street. You leave to start this company. Are there regrets that you didn't do that sooner as women are weighing whether or not to stay at the firms they're at or start their own businesses? What would you say about timing? Well, you know, for Elevest, uh, which is a digital investment platform for women, um, I'm not sure I could have started it any sooner Mm. because the technology had to catch up with the idea. I mean, we're providing a, to my mind, really sophisticated offering for women. It's true goals-based investing. It's not about beating the market when the euro this versus the yen, but investing highly customized investment portfolios to reach your goals. Buy a house, have a baby, start a business, retire well. Um, and the technology um, had to come pretty far for the, for it to be feasible for us to build the business. So do I wish I'd skipped a few chapters? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, that that getting reorged out of Bank of America. I could have – I actually had a dream last week. Brian Moynihan wants to see you. I'm uh-huh. like, not again. <laughs> I'm going to get reorged out again even though my results are better than, oh. you know, even though we're beating play. No. And I, in my dream, I thought if I just escape from the office, maybe they won't find me. Can't be um, tracked down. Yeah, but – Then I woke up. (laughs) (laughs) You quibble with, you take issue with the term uh, empowerment. What is it about that that word that you don't like? I've always hated it. And I thought it was because it was trite and, you know, let me, I've always hated it because I thought it was overused. Mm. Um, I then finally, finally looked it up in the dictionary and empowerment means to be given power. Wait a minute. We women have got loads of power. We control $5 trillion of investable assets. We jointly control with our partners another six. We direct 80% of consumer spending. We're more than half the workforce. Mm. That's power. We haven't had the means to use it before. How would you know which company to buy from? Well, all of a sudden, there's startups that will tell you, you know, when you go to the grocery store, buy up index will tell you the gender makeup, the senior leadership team of the company you're buying from. So all of us, or, you know, done good will tell you about how companies are treating the environment. So all of a sudden, we have, whether it's who we buy from, who we invest in, asking for the raise, never knew how much to ask for before, but there are all these sites that tell you how much money you should be making now, um, pay scale, get raised, et cetera. So we have this power. Mm -hmm. And now we're beginning to have the means to use it. So I think it's changing and I think it can change pretty rapidly. And I think the timing is so fascinating as we have women take to the streets in Washington and New York and all over the world. What we're hearing from women again and again is I want to take some action. What we were doing before stalled out. We need to do something different. Sally, thank you very much for coming in. Too short uh, a time today. Hope we can have you back again, maybe during March Madness. I, I don't know, more fervent UNC fan than I. Here we have back one. Back for a fellow Tar Heel any day Terrific. of the week. Thank Go you very gal. much. Sally Crotchett joining us here in the studio. She's the CEO and co-founder of Elvis, the author of Own It, The Power of Women at Work. David Gura in New York. Tom Keene is off today. Kevin Logan joins us now. He's the chief U.S. economist at HSBC. Uh, like many of us, he lent an ear to what the president, like the then president-elect, had to say on Friday. And let's start there, Kevin. Uh, we focus with an inaugural address on the sweeping rhetoric. Uh, it was 16 minutes worth of that. Did you expect much granular detail to be sprinkled uh, over? What did you hear when the president spoke, especially when it came to trade? Well, he, he had two main themes, populism and protectionism. He talked about the people. He was anti-establishment. He says there's a new sheriff in town. Things are going to change. We're not going to do things the way they were done before, and particularly on trade. 
Uh, previous administrations had been focused on multilateral deals, uh, the rule of law, everyone abiding by the same agreement. And Mr. Trump has a completely different approach. Uh, he's going to uh, approach things on a unilateral basis, one-on-one mm. -on -one trade deals, and as he put it, America first. Not a multilateral deal in which many countries benefit and there's give and take, but rather now things that clearly benefit, in his view, uh, deals that will benefit the United States. So that is a complete break with the past, and it's a new direction. What's your sense of the, the effectiveness of the meetings uh, he has been holding at the White House uh, thus far? He's going to meet with auto executives uh, this morning. Yesterday he met with uh, leaders of industrial companies, uh, among others. Uh, Elon Musk was uh, there from Tesla and SolarCity. Um, how effective can a meeting like that be when he tries to pursue this, this new kind of trade policy, I suppose? Well, I think image is very, very important for Trump, and it's very important for any administration when it first comes in. Everyone understands the auto industry. Everyone knows that a lot of jobs have moved to Mexico, for example, where a lot of parts are uh, manufactured and then shipped back to the United States. And so going straight to the automobile industry uh, has a great optical appeal mm. to people throughout the country. And he may get some victories there, small victories, some more production in the U.S., and it might involve a few thousand jobs. More importantly, I think, is what is the grand plan? What is the big plan that's going to change incentives for U.S. manufacturers or any company uh, to produce more in the United States and to reverse this outflow of uh, uh, production that's been going on for several decades? The U.S. tax system uh, basically encourages uh, firms to move production out of the U.S. Not it's, that it's just the U.S. tax system. It's also the tax system compared with other countries. If other countries have a value-added tax system, a VAT system that taxes consumption but not so much production, whereas the U.S. has a system that taxes production and not consumption, well, of course, production is going to move where it's more lightly taxed. And that's been going on for some time. The question now is what will the Trump administration do to provide new incentives for corporations to locate their production in the U.S. rather than in other countries. That's what we'll be watching for in coming months. There was a moment at the, the press briefing yesterday. Sean Spicer was talking with reporters. One asked about uh, the unemployment rate. She said, what is the unemployment rate? And there was some hemming and hawing about uh, what he and the administration thinks it is. Uh, and a line after that stood out to me. He said that we've been focusing too much on uh, statistics. And I want to just draw that more broadly to talk about trade. You have uh, the president signing a, an executive order yesterday rejecting the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. By all reports, he's going to do the same thing with NAFTA. He's going to call for a, a rewrite of that later in the week. Are you convinced that there is enough attention being paid to the economic case for, for reevaluating these trade deals? Or is this, uh, you know, <laughs> sort of statistics be damned, we're looking at, at policy exclusive of that? Well, yes. It, it's not only statistics be down, but conventional economic theory be down. Yeah. Uh, most trade theorists would say there are great benefits from trade. Look at all the inexpensive goods that are imported into the United States. This benefits everyone. It increases people's standard of living. But that's not what the Trump administration is about. So those general gains are dwarfed in their minds by the losses that have occurred for people who are in those sectors which uh, lost employment, lost production because of trade, and that's what they want to reverse. So the overall theory or the overall statistics, yes, those statistics and theories can be damned because the people who supported Donald Trump to a large degree see themselves as being disadvantaged in the uh, by conventional trade theory and that there should be uh, a reversal of that. So that's why we're headed in this new direction. Let me ask you lastly here uh, about a different topic entirely. Uh, Steven Mnuchin, the pick to be Treasury Secretary, was testifying on Capitol Hill, and he talked about uh, the strength of the dollar. 
the president tweeted about the strength of the dollar, saying he uh, hoped it would be weaker. This is unprecedented to have a president doing that. Are we seeing the end of the strong dollar policy? Was that, was that the pivot? Was that the turn there when that tweet uh, came out? It certainly sounded as if it was a pivot and a change. Back in the 90s when uh, Bill Clinton was president, the strong dollar policy was adopted because there was concern about capital flows into the United States. Interest rates were higher. It was a concern that foreign investors were, were uh, discouraged by the uh, progress of the American economy. And if the capital wasn't invested in the U.S., interest rates would remain high and it would be difficult for uh, the U.S. economy to grow. Adopting a strong po- dollar policy sort of put a safety net mm. underneath the value of uh, U.S. assets for foreign investors. By the time we got to the end of that decade, the economy was strong, the U.S. deficit was shrinking, moved into a surplus. Uh, the, the rationale for a strong dollar policy had gone. But the policy had its own inertia and just continued. Not anymore. I think it's a new era and a, a new approach to the dollars that we're about to see. Kevin Logan, always great to speak with you. Chief U.S. Economist at HSBC joining us here in New York. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. David Gura in New York, Tom Keene off today, Scarlet Food joining me uh, in the studio. Brennan Hawken, he's an analyst with UBS. We're here uh, at the end of earnings season, of the fourth quarter earnings season for the big banks, the big six banks. Brennan Hawken, uh, great to have you with us. And, and let's start, if we could, with this prospect for regulatory uh, change. We heard from Steve Mnuchin last week on Capitol Hill testi- testifying before the Senate Finance Committee. He was asked about uh, what could change when it comes to regulation. How do you, how do analysts like you begin to process what that could mean for banks' bottom lines, changes to the regulatory framework? Yeah. Hi, David. Thanks for having me on. Um, it's a great question and probably the one that's most difficult to try to figure out. Uh, it's something we've been wrestling with uh, ever since uh, early November, right? Uh, and, um, of course, regulatory change is one factor. There's also the potential for, for tax uh, reform uh, and, and everything like that. But I'll stick to the spirit of your question um, and, um, you know, the, the regulatory adjustments and how to think about it. We uh, have done some analysis looking at Goldman as an example because, really, they're probably the most likely uh, to benefit, and we can we can get into why if you'd like. Um, we took a look at what happened in in 2009, um, which was the last time we had a nice solid growth of the FIC revenue pool, uh, which is fixed income currency and commodity trading amongst the large bulge bracket investment banks. And Goldman took a ton of share. Uh, they captured about 30 percent of that revenue opportunity. Um, it, they're a great franchise. They were able to be committed to um, uh, putting capital at work in the market, and they hadn't fired everybody uh, off of their trading desks the way so many of their competitors had, which is remarkably similar to today um, when other firms have restructured their FIC business. It, it's been a really problematic line of business for a lot of the bulge brackets, um, but Goldman has stuck to it. And so we think that they are in a very, very good position to benefit from thick expansion. If we just get back to, uh, you know, the 2011 to 2013 average uh, for FIC, you know, we'd be adding about $15 billion to the global revenue pool. 
Is this a case of Goldman uh, stealing share from its competitors, or is it growing? Is the market growing or starting to to grow again? So a little bit of both, probably, Scarlett. Um, what I would say is, um, they, Goldman has ceded uh, or have had market share stolen in your parlance um, <laughs> over the last few years in FIC, um, and that's mostly because. The macro businesses, FX, rates, are not really big, uh, strong, as strong markets for Goldman as the commercial banks. Commercial banks have huge stockpiles of treasuries. They, they deal in, in currencies uh, uh, you know, globally through a banking footprint. And so they have competitive advantages over a firm like Goldman. Um, and so they're... Goldman, through its business, mix alone is going to appear to seed share in a time when macro businesses do much better within FIC. Scarlett Fu and I talking with Brennan Hawk, an analyst with UBS. Uh, just on the subject of Goldman, quickly, if I could here, Brennan, we see so many alumni of Goldman Sachs going into government here. Uh, Goldman Sachs once again being foisted into the spotlight as a result of that. Is that something that's worrying to you as an analyst? Does that bring new scrutiny to the bank? Maybe not new scrutiny, but renewed scrutiny to the bank. And, and is that something that could affect how the bank performs? certainly will bring um, attention from the press. I, I think that that's to be expected. Um, I, I'm not so sure. I usually don't think that that has a big impact. Normally when someone goes into, uh, you know, public service after they've, um, you know, done what they want to do and made a good deal of wealth in, in private sector, they usually do it because they feel like they can have an impact. Now, what I think is important and interesting is that, you know, folks like Gary Cohen and the like who go into um, Mnuchin, who you referenced before, David, they, they, when they go into public service, they, they tend to be more um, understanding of commercial interests, pro-market, understanding the benefits that market can bring, whereas some of the previous uh, folks in uh, regulatory and senior Washington positions, you know, folks like Dan, well, he currently still is, but we'll, we'll see how for how long. Mm. Dan Tarullo, who comes out of academia and law, they, they just have a different approach and understanding of, um, you know, the need to generate sufficient returns in the market, the benefit that markets can provide to companies and allowing for access to capital, the importance of liquidity. And so, to me, this is really, we stumbled onto a key point, and, and you know, maybe if Tom were here, I'd get a rip-up-the-script comment or something out of him, right? But, um, uh, uh, you know, to me, this is where the rubber will hit the road, and we can um, actually see uh, a regulatory tone change, right? The idea that, you know, those on top are saying, listen, we, we need to have better functioning capital markets. We need to have greater liquidity in some of these bond markets and the like. And the best way to do it is to not, you know, continue to apply pressure to these businesses when they're really just trying to uh, service customers. So that being the case, what would Gary Cohn do as his first initiative or what would he be pushing for in his first initiative to, uh, supporting President Trump? Yeah, and, and the we, we, we started on Gary, but, but I, I strayed, of course, more, more broadly than that. Um, I think um, 
uh, Gary is in a position where he would be advising, right, on the, uh, the Economic Council, which is more of um, a, a tonal impact, right, uh, an adjustment to approach, perhaps if he can put input into um, assignments uh, in key regulatory positions. To me, the key regulatory positions are what are really important here. And so we took, I mentioned before about the Tarula role within the Fed. Um, uh, there is also the idea we're going to have a new SEC uh, uh, chairperson, uh, uh, Jay Clayton, here soon, who clearly has uh, an understanding and appreciation for commercial interests uh, in the markets. We've also got um, a, the potential for a new head of CFTC, um, which is going to have a very, very big impact on some of these trading markets. Volcker has had a huge impact on the FIC markets, mostly um, because there's so much scrutiny of any kind of principal transaction uh, and the need to uh, be so cautious and so concerned uh, about uh, these uh, entities uh, trading on their own account, whereas in, in reality they might just be facilitating uh, you know, customer uh, trades. So is it a matter of perhaps not enforcing um, everything that's in the Volcker rule and, and everything that's in regulation right now as opposed to rewriting it completely? 100%. 100%. To me, um, the idea that we would have repeal um, of laws actually on the books is a lot more difficult. Um, Volcker is an extremely subjective rule, and if you have a regulatory approach that is hostile in its tone, then you're, there's going to be an enthusiasm and a um, an approach that will limit the ability of a lot of these firms to provide liquidity to the market, whereas if the approach is more pro-market, more, more commercially oriented, um, then it, we could easily see a greater amount of liquidity provided. Brendan, the time that we have left, let me bring it back to, to the last earnings season. Uh, it was a fourth quarter earnings season. We saw a, a, a beat like we don't usually see in the fourth quarter. Speak to the uniqueness of, of, of what we saw there. We've mentioned that it was a, a fixed story for a lot of these uh, big banks. Are there signs that's going to continue into the next quarter, or was this something really uniquely tied to the president's victory? Um, so it was a mix, probably a mix of both. Um, there was the victory was definitely very helpful in um, providing a catalyst for markets and providing volumes. We saw a similar thing when Brexit occurred. Uh, you know, in the third quarter, uh, there was a benefit actually to some degree to the second, but also to the third quarter uh, from that event. Um, the election also provided a great deal of reason to uh, for customers to trade in the fourth quarter. Fourth quarters normally are not all that great mm -hmm. because of the holidays and the, and the lower amount of trading volume in total. One queue is typically where a great deal of money is made, especially in FIC. We're off to a very, very good start. There's been a, a very busy underwriting calendar uh, for a lot of these debt markets, which tends to bode very, very well for FIC uh, revenues. Comps are quite easy, so I think we're going to see another really strong revenue growth quarter here this quarter, and that's even before a lot of these adjustments to the regulatory enforcement that I've made reference to before start to actually have an impact. So to me, we're just getting started. All right, Brennan, we'll have to have you back after some of those adjustments start to happen. Brennan Hawkins, an analyst with UBS, joining us. Michael Gapin joins us now. He's Chief U.S. Economist at Barclays, joining us here in the studio. Let me start with a definitional question. Sure. There was a lot of talk about tariffs during the campaign and the transition. Uh, now the talk seems to have shifted to, to conversation about the border adjustment tax. Right. Uh, 
Are they the same thing? What, 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 do you, what do you make of the rhetoric we've heard about that here over these The way the president days? speaks about it, it is a tariff. So he says if, if you're a company and you relocate overseas and you try and export back into the U.S., you will face a 35% tax, right? That's the simplified version of what he said. That's a tariff. The way House Speaker Ryan and some of the Senate plans talk about the border adjustment tax is it's couched in broad-based corporate tax reform. So it's a tax on all imports, and it's a reorientation of the tax code. So right now, it's a point of origin system. So if you're a U.S. corporation, doesn't matter where the sale takes place, it's subject to federal taxes. So if you export that, sell it abroad, you're subject to federal taxes in the U.S. You pay it when it's repatriated, and that's why we have the repatriation issue. But if you reorient the system, and tax all imports, you're re- fundamentally reshaping the, the full corporate tax code. So I would say it depends on which border tax you're, you're talking about. If it's House, Ryan, House Speaker Ryan's plan, it's comprehensive, couched in comprehensive tax reform. It's part of a very broad-based fiscal stimulus plan. If you're looking at it the way President Trump is talking about it, it's more bilateral tariffs against specific trading partners. Is everyone trying to simplify this a little bit too much? I mean, should there be the same tax, whether it's border tax or a tariff, on all industry, all types of companies? Well, I think that there's probably a legal issue on whether you can put this tax on an individual firm, right? So I think if Even you... Even though he's called out specific companies. Correct. So I, I'm not a legal scholar on this, mm-hmm. but I, my, my guess is where it would go is you'd have to consider then tariffs on a specific industry mm-hmm. or uh, an entire country. Um, so if you go back to say when um, when Reagan was in was in office, we put a tariff on semiconductors. You look at what President Obama did on steel imports from from China. So I think you would have to at least treat an entire segment, an industry segment, the same way. Does that work better? Uh, not necessarily. I think it well. It depends on what what the goal is ultimately. And in this case, what the president's trying to do is reorient activity to the domestic economy. And in principle, if you want to get less of something, in this case, trade, you have to make it more expensive, or prohibit it. So I think what what the president would be saying is there are specific bilateral trading partners that are not behaving well, and we could re- perhaps remedy that that through tariff policy. The House and Senate plans are more about, we don't like the way the corporate tax code is set up. We Mm -hmm. think it creates too many distortions. Um, We'd like to lower the rate, broaden the base, and and the border adjustment tax provides a way to do that. So one's about trade policy. The other one is about corporate taxation. Make it more expensive or prohibit it, you say. And I I wonder if you've you've modeled that out, sort of what that means, and if you think that the politicians who are proposing these changes have reckoned with that as well, what it could mean for the U.S. economy. Well, I think that, so in in the political economy sense, I think you asked the question, did we just vote as as a country to say we're comfortable with paying a little more to get a little less if that means we get to keep more jobs at home? That's the kind of the anti-globalization trade-off. So if you put tariffs on on products, you will get less trade. That's true. But it'll also mean what you and I buy every day is generally a little more expensive. So your dollar won't go as far. That's a political economy trade-off where in the short run, it would likely hurt activity a bit and cause a little more inflation. So you have to trade a short-term loss for an unknown medium-term gain. Normally, that's not a good political trade-off, but that's what we're looking at. We're in uncharted territory at the same time. (laughs) That's right. We don't have a tremendous amount of experience with the imposition of very large tariffs. 
Um, you have to go back many decades to do that. Generally, it's not positive for activity in, in the short run. You know, I heard uh, Stephen Moore interviewed this morning uh, of the Heritage Foundation, former advisor to Donald Trump when he was running for president. And one thing he acknowledged is you have the president calling out, as Scarlett said, some of these companies by name. Uh, this could all fall apart. This strategy could all fall apart if one of them decided it makes more sense to move overseas despite the fact that these tariffs are, are in place. Do you agree with that, that this is a, sort of a, uh, a loosely constructed house? Well, that's when I would say push comes to shove and you have to decide what you what you want to do. In, in our baseline, we do assume protectionist policies are put into place. We felt like the main theme of the Trump campaign was reorienting activity domestically, backing away from a globalized economy. So I, I do think you will get protectionist policies. So yes, right now the messages don't do it, but if somebody does it, then you've drawn a line, the so-called red line. And what, what does the administration do in response? And we think you will get some tariffs. Mm. So what is the argument or the best argument that the heads of GM, Ford, and Fiat Chrysler can make when they go and speak with President Trump today when it comes to how best to preserve their growth prospects but also protect U.S. jobs? Well, the auto market is a global market. Our, our Detroit makes autos that they ship into China as well. So mm -hmm. growth for these companies is largely outside the U.S. They also make products for sale here. They have a global factory production process. Some of it they source and produce domestically. Some of it they source and produce globally. They've allocated their capital in a way that maximizes their efficiency under the current system. If you change all that around, there's going to be a lot of upheaval. I'll ask you how this factors into your GDP forecast right now when you look at uh, how the country might, uh, the country's economy might grow. Uh, I imagine that trade is still looming large as a variable that you really don't have a, a handle on yet, that none of us have a handle on, on yet. That's uh, right. How are, you, how are you calculating well, your, your forecast so what, for GDP? What we're assuming is, is that you get, say, 7% tariffs on imports from Mexico and 15% on imports from China. That covers about a third of all imports. So if, if that's correct, it would tend to reduce your growth rate by about a half a percent. And it would tend to boost rates of inflation, say, two to three tenths. So it wouldn't be a major drag, but it would also depend on what these countries do in response, and it would depend on what other trading partners do. And it's important to consider, do you get complementary fiscal stimulus alongside that? So this is why I think you need if, – if, if I'm, a say, a political operative and, and I want to do anti-trade policies, I better do those expansionary fiscal policies – at the same time or close to the same time. So the one would outweigh the other. So if it's, say, modest anti-trade, it's something that I think a fiscal stimulus bill could over outweigh and keep the economy on, say, a 2 to 2.5% two growth path and everything looks fine. If it's, if it's import tariffs on all imports and our trading partners do the same, it's a very different story. So I think it does depend on the reach of those anti-trade policies and whether you get expansionary fiscal policy alongside. So as we await details of the new administration's trade policy and as they sort out how they're going to approach infrastructure spending and, and other parts of their fiscal stimulus, what kind of cost does that uncertainty have on, on business activity? I think you know, historically it would say that investment waits. And we're, we're going to get the advance estimate of Q4 GDP on, on Friday, and I would expect within that business spending will be quite soft. That whether it's spending on equipment and software or intellectual property or structures, we expect those rates of growth to be quite modest. So until you know the details, the answer is typically you wait. Mm -hmm. So at least let's say through the first half of the year, we would be very surprised if businesses front run 
any policy decision or consumers front run any any tax cut. I think until you know the details, we're in a holding pattern. Let me ask you about a moment in the press conference yesterday with Sean sure. Spicer, the White House press secretary. Question was, what's the unemployment rate? Is this going to be something that's pretty hotly debated here in the new year, what what unemployment actually is? Uh, I think it's it's about facts and how you claim victory. And so if you don't settle on a definition of what unemployment is, then you can always claim that your policies are are benefiting labor markets. There's an accepted unemployment rate. That's, let's call it mid to high fours right now, because it's, it's oscillating around 4.7, 4.8, But we're below 5%. And most of us in the economist world have settled on, yeah, that's a reasonable measure of where labor markets are. And by that measure, we're at full employment. We are here with Michael Gapin. He is the chief U.S. economist at Barclays. And Michael, we were talking about how to define unemployment in this new administration. The Federal Reserve may have the opportunity to do just that because next week we have the next FOMC meeting on Wednesday. Um, People are not expecting a rate increase. It's not a live meeting. In fact, if you look at WIRP on the Bloomberg, only a 20 percent chance of a rate hike on February 1st. Yet we are likely to get some language regarding where we are in the Fed's duty to fulfill its two mandates of full employment and uh, inflation, controlling inflation. That's right. So last week when Cherry Yellen spoke, you got a very clear message on the labor market. The unemployment rate, the U3 measure, is near its long-term um, level. The underemployment rate, has the U6 measure, has fully retraced. All your cyclical components of participation in the employment-to-population ratio have have been removed, and it would be risky and unwise to pursue uh, a hot economy. And mm-hmm. she concluded, I think we're, we're basically there on the employment side of, of our dual mandate. So I think that's the message you'll see in the statement. There'll be the normal discussion on the incoming data, but I think you'll, you'll see that conclusion that at least as, as it pertains to labor markets, underutilization has been removed. And that'll be an important signal for markets because looking ahead, it means further progress will generate rate hikes. It's an important signal for the markets. What kind of signal does it send to the Trump administration? That's right. So I think that the Fed is, has a statutory mandate, meaning Congress has given it um, specific goals. And the Fed interprets its maximum employment goal through a, a variety of measures, but the main one is the unemployment rate. So the marker there from a political point of view is that, well, we have to raise rates because we're pretty close to our dual mandate. We're a little off on inflation, but we're basically there on unemployment. So further progress means rate hikes. So it's a signal on a political front that we're doing this because we're there, not because we don't like the policies that mm. that are coming. But if you don't accept that unemployment rate um, you're, uh, from the other side, you're still likely to generate some political criticism. Fold this into the political argument that's taking place on Capitol Hill about a more rules-based approach. The Fed should take a more rules-based approach. Uh, if one were in place, how would that affect the Fed's thinking right now? Well, the rules-based approach would, would say if, if you assume the U3 unemployment rate is part of, yeah. of, of that rule, then yes, that rule would say you should be normalizing policy. Um, Yellen went through several different variations of the policy rule. All of them suggested that rates should, should go higher, some faster than, than others. But the, the critical decision would be, well, what do you assume then is the goal for maximum employment. And the inflation side is obviously easier to to pin down. Um, But from a rules-based approach that says either some combination of U3 and even U6, we're there by by those measures and moderate increases in in front-end rates are, are in store. 
Does the Fed matter as much in, in this environment? Uh, it's they, been a while since we, we talk about the Fed as having an actual impact on, on how companies decide what to do. That's right. So I think the, the big shift in November was that the Fed's no longer the only game in town. Mm-hmm. And for, for years, our discussions have always been around what's the central bank going to, going to do. Dissecting every move, every <laughs> That's thought. Right. And, and now we're, we're getting a little more balance, and the Fed will be following. So it depends on what fiscal policy does. You get a lot of anti, anti-trade, not a lot of fiscal stimulus. The Fed will be ignoring that inflation impulse, looking where activity goes, and you may get easing in that world. Mm-hmm. If you get a lot of fiscal stimulus at a time when the Fed sees the economy as, as being at full employment, and we would agree with that, then you're going to get some offset. So they're important in the sense that they will be pushing rates higher. The dollar will likely respond to that. So you'll get a tightening in financial conditions alongside fiscal stimulus. So there'll be some crowding out effects. Help us with the, the potential seismic shift here in terms of personnel on the Federal Reserve. Uh, how big a deal is, is that going to be? We heard the report this week that maybe a community banker might join the ranks uh, of the Federal Reserve Board. Uh, how big a shift is this going to be? I, I think in the next, by 2018, you'll probably turn over a third to half of the entire FOMC, at least from the board's point of view, it's likely the chair and the the vice chair, um, Daniel Tarullo, if not one or two more, um, may maybe. So you got the two new faces, and then perhaps three changes. So help, that's, us, help us with the new faces. I mean, do you have do you have a sense of who this administration might put forward? Well, for there's been, jobs? as you mentioned, there's uh, the com- the name of the community bankers that were were put out uh, yesterday. I would say we don't have a tremendous amount of information. What I would say is I would expect them to be more practitioners, actual bankers, or those who have worked in markets and generated good performance. Um, So Kevin Warsh would be an example. If you reach back and look at a previous board governor from a Republican administration, a little more market practitioner-oriented, much less, say, pure academic-oriented. That's kind of the, the shift I would expect. What it means for monetary policy? It's hard to say until we know who the chair is. All right. Michael Gabin, thank you very much, as always, for joining us. Michael Gabin, chief U.S. economist at Barclays, joining us here in New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.